You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, February 16, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Lots to talk about today uh, with Darius, looking out across U.S. equity markets, uh, essentially flat here on the day, not a ton of movement, but lots of news flow to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, yesterday's January PPI print, retail sales, and of course, the FOMC minutes. But before we get into that, uh, important note here on Ukraine. Uh, Russia says it is continuing to pull back troops from the Ukrainian border. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, can, says that the U.S. essentially cannot independently confirm uh, that that troop pullback is taking place. Uh, with that said, Darius, lots to talk about here with markets and macro. Darius, what's on your screen right now? Oh, so, I mean, there's a lot on our screens right now. So I'll start with the, the Fed minute. That was kind of the uh, topic du jour of today, or at least of this afternoon. Um, and they're pretty ho-hum. They're boring. They certainly weren't as uh, exciting as the December Fed minutes in terms of giving us an incremental update on the Fed's monetary policy normalization agenda. Um, I think probably the biggest takeaway, um, well, well, the biggest takeaway is that it, it did provide an incremental evidence, but the secondary takeaway um, is that, you know, the Fed officials, uh, see the, the median Fed official believes QT is likely to commence in in, um, in the third quarter of this year. Again, this is a meeting was before we got the uh, January CPI data last week. And so you can sort of think about pulling that forward uh, at least into the, the second half of the second quarter, although we do believe that certainly by the, um, you know, by April or May, we're likely to be engaged in quantitative tightening. Hey, Darius, for folks who are not eyebrow deep in this like you are, give us a sense of what the significance of that is, uh, that you see this median forecast being for uh, tightening for Q3. Yeah, well, so I'll go and say I'm probably uh, scuba diving. <laughs> I wish, I'd love to be eyebrow deep, uh, but I'm probably too close to this stuff to begin with. But uh, And so what we ultimately mean is obviously the Fed has outlined, um, you know, sort of the guidelines and principles for its balance sheet reduction, which largely consists of letting um, you know, sort of uh, principal repayments roll off, particularly uh, in the in the um, in the mortgage-backed security space. Um, there was some talk about potentially accelerating that by a sales of mortgage-backed securities, but it's unclear whether or not um, they've seen enough to to perpetuate to actually uh, sign off on that at this current juncture. But the reality is, we've already gotten the guidance we needed out of Jay Powell, which is quantitative tightening is likely to start, you know, fairly quickly uh, after um, after after they they, they opt for liftoff, which obviously is going to be. Uh, in a month or so, I, mean, exactly, I believe in exactly one month's time. Yeah. So, Darius, let's talk a little bit about some of the drivers of this. I'm talking about inflation, of course. Uh, some new numbers out yesterday. Uh, January PPI, this is producer price index, uh, generally doesn't get as much attention as CPI, consumer price index. Uh, but we got a really hot print on this. 1% uh, month over month uh, seasonal change. Big, uh, seasonally adjusted, I should say. Uh, big change. Uh, I think it's 1.1% non-seasonally adjusted. These are big movements for producer price index. What does it mean? What's the significance? Significance and what are your thoughts? Yeah, so the significance is that uh, we still saw a pretty elevated rate of sequential momentum uh, in the time series, uh, but the year over year started to decline. And again, this is the first month where we're seeing base effects actually start to impact 
uh, reported inflation statistics, and that's going to be something that'll per uh, persist all throughout uh, of 2022. So, uh, you know, we did see the, the, the price pressure on a year-over-year -year basis ease, uh, not only just in the U.S. PPI statistics, we also got PPI data out of China and the U.K., uh, which eased as well. And so this continues to lend credence to our view that the world traversed uh, peak supply chain disruptions in Q4 of this year. Um, and as those sort of disruptions ameliorate uh, on balance uh, throughout the, the, the you know, first half of this year, really throughout the balance of this year, it's very likely that that sequential momentum in the inflation time series will start to wane. At the same time, the base effects themselves are steepening into and, and through the, the latter part of this year. So um, that's a cocktail for much slower inflation prints. Um, than what we currently are dealing with, but it's not necessarily a cocktail for target, you know, at or below target inflation prints anytime soon. And so that's why uh, the Fed is very much likely to continue um, tightening monetary policy into a simultaneous slowdown in both inflation and growth. Yeah, this is a really interesting view. And I should say, an important point here, you're talking about the second derivative, the rate of change, uh, getting a sense of where this is going in the future. That's why you're saying uh, you see this beginning to moderate. But we should point out, uh, when you talk about this on a year-over-year -year basis, uh, it looks like a 6.9% print, uh, nearly 7% uh, inflation. That's pretty close to in line with what we're seeing on CPI. Those are still significant numbers. Uh, you're suggesting uh, that you believe that it's sort of past the peak of acceleration, that we're going to see a deceleration uh, in the rate of change on this, but still obviously quite significant, quite material, uh, and principally the driver of precisely what you were mentioning earlier, uh, which is the monetary tightening uh, expected to come out of the Fed uh, in 2022. Yeah, you're spot on. And look, the, so markets function on rate of change, right? The, the markets care about what the current state is and when the, the, the direction and magnitude of the change in these critical economic variables. Um, they also care about the, the, the pace direction and tightening and, and a direction of easing or tightening and the magnitude of the change with respect to monetary and fiscal policy as well. But let's not forget the Fed is an academic institution largely um, that kind of cares about markets, but generally is much more concerned about inflation dynamics and employment dynamics, and then uses sort of financial stability or financial conditions um, as sort of a third stool, a weak third stool relative to its, its, its broader mandate. Um, the Fed is a levels-based institution. The Fed cares about the level of inflation. Um, you, you sort of the, the persistency of, of staying above target, the persistency of, of, of wage pressures in the economy and all those things that are, you know, certainly have some Fed officials spooked. Obviously, we've heard from Bullard last week. We're going to hear from Bullard uh, again uh, tomorrow. And then I believe there's a, some sort of policy um, <laughs> kumbaya on Friday as well. And so the reality is until the levels of these uh, factors change, we can't expect the Fed to do a a real about face. And this is, to me, this is the critical call for 2022. The yeah, you said Go, sorry, I was going to say, the, the inflation moment, the moment, the inflation level will not decline fast enough to cause the Fed to pivot dovishly. The wage pressure in the U.S. economy will not abate fast enough to cause the Fed to pivot dovishly. So the only signal that the Federal Reserve can get in order to, to tell it that it's over tightened, that it's done too much from a monetary policy standpoint, uh, tightening standpoint, uh, is through the lens of financial conditions, and that's a problem. Yeah, you said something very important at the beginning of that conversation, which is effectively uh, that markets are pricing the rate of change. This is probably a key insight for people who are thinking about uh, these uh, these types of issues uh, for relatively uh, early in their investing career for the first time. Important point, uh, what we're seeing price is the rate of change, the new information coming into the market, uh, and how that's being perceived in terms of 
relative strength or weakness to a trend. I should also say precisely uh, on that road, uh, I'm curious to get your insights about what's happening in bond markets. Uh, U.S. 10-year yield, uh, obviously over 2% right now. What are your thoughts about U.S. Treasuries? Yeah, so the U.S. Treasury market, so there's two, there's two sides of the Treasury discussion. One, there's the yield curve flattening, and the yield curve flattening, whether you look at 10s, 2s, or 5s, 30s, or forward rates markets, they're obviously on a path to inversion in certain pockets of the market. Uh, if you look particularly forwards, markets are already um, signaling inversion. And so that's telling you um, that the Fed, which is extremely behind the curve, not only relative to where markets are priced, rates markets are pricing uh, policy tightening, but also with respect to where we are in the broader business cycle as it relates to the level of unemployment and the, and the, and the tightness in the labor market from a wage perspective. And so it's still the yield curve is saying, hey, look, the Fed's going to tighten us into a slowdown. Uh, but if you actually look at just the level and the and the and the and the, and the trending momentum uh, in 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 bond yields and, and things of that nature, they're continuing to sing a song that the economy is fine, um, if you will. If you there's a couple things that are continuing to sing a song that the economy is fine for now. One, we wouldn't be having you know sort of um, increased duration risk, i.e., bonds going down in price if we didn't have a growth ex uh, growth expectation in the market that we're likely to rebound off of this sort of Omicron-driven weakness that we saw in late Q4 and into early Q1. Um, we're also getting that signal confirmed uh, through our dispersion analysis as well. Um, one thing we track at 42 Macro are, are the month-on-month -month sharp ratios across 50, 60 U.S. equity sectors, style factors, um, as a proxy uh, for institutional flows. In fact, if you can put that chart up, chart 32, um, that's sort of, um, you know, we, we update this every day for our subscribers. But, you know, what we're trying to look at um, at this analysis, the chart on the right, shows sort of the composition of the upper quintile of that of that cohort of that population sample relative to the lower quintile and ultimately trying to identify how that composition is changing because it's really instructive in terms of identifying the behavior of your sort of kind of pod shop style hedge funds these are your multi-manager platform shops these are massive hedge funds they control anywhere between 60 70 80 percent of financial market of equity market turnover in any given day and so what we're trying to do is track that behavior and the behavior continues to signal that the economy is doing fine if you think about relaying what what you know energy leadership airlines leadership leisure and hospitality leadership imply for the kind of near-term direction of the economy and so in my opinion this post omicron bounce dynamic is having market impact both in terms of, uh, of leadership within the market, but also in terms of uh, the direction of travel for bond yields. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, talking of bond yields, uh, I want to talk a little bit uh, internationally here. I believe we've got a piece of tape uh, from Real Vision's Weston Nakamura talking about what's happening in Chinese bond markets, Chinese sovereigns. Let's take a look at that clip if we have it. Hey, guys. So the G20 Central Banks and Finance Ministers meeting uh, is being held virtually this week. Uh, it's being hosted by uh, Indonesia this year. And I just want to highlight the opening remarks um, from the governor of the PBOC. He spent a good amount of time promoting bilateral renminbi currency swaps um, among Asian nations as a way to uh, alleviate dollar strength, which I personally thought was a 
sort of smart and opportunistic uh, move to further advance the yuan um, and offer like an alternative shift away from USD dependency. But then he went on to explicitly state the following, quote, uh, throughout the entire process, the PBOC has worked to improve supporting measures and to reduce cross-border restrictions on the use of local currencies to make sure that market forces always stay the key driver. Market forces from the government of the People's Bank of China. Now, meanwhile, in commodities, let me also highlight the iron ore market in China, which has been getting hammered uh, down about 10% in the last two days as officials uh, have been taking measures to clamp down on surging prices, once again. And at the same time, you have the CEOs of both BHP and Fortescue coming out and saying that uh, iron ore prices uh, will be strong because of demand from China, and ultimately supply and demand are going to determine prices of iron ore and not uh, Chinese authorities. And now I'm not like accusing hypocrisy by China for touting free market forces on one side and then hammering commodity markets on the other. Frankly, they're no different from everybody else. My point is that what's happening with the iron ore battle is a sort of perfect microcosm of this year's very strange G20 meeting um, and the unusual challenges that they face as a group. Because at the end of this, they're gonna have to sign a communique and somehow all coalesce around cooperation. Right as we're on the cusp of splintering global policy divergences as each economy and country is being affected uh, by inflation in different ways to differing degrees and certainly different policy uh, prescriptions. So ultimately, forget speeches, forget interviews, forget communiques, just watch actions and price action uh, to get a read on what's going on. All right, thanks. Well, there it is. Weston Nakamura coming to us uh, from Tokyo, uh, our man in Asia covering these markets. I think it's interesting, uh, the irony, of course, of Weston talking uh, about market-based mechanisms setting rates uh, in China. Uh, I'm curious, Darius, uh, maybe we can bring that framework back to the U.S. a bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're seeing in bond markets. Now, we were talking a little bit during the break of twos, tens uh, curved. What are you seeing in terms of market-based mechanisms here uh, in the U.S. pricing these uh, these uh, rate hikes and pricing inflation in bond markets right now? Yeah, so I think the most interesting dynamic, um, and it's not even really with respect to bond markets, just within the broader fixed income universe and looking at rates markets in particular, you're starting to see a, a, a material amount of inversion uh, in OIS forward curves, and these are overnight index swaps. Uh, forwards on those on those uh, on those on those contracts. Jerry, um, what do you unpack uh, for people who may not uh, be familiar with overnight index swaps? What the significance of those swaps are and what they price? Yeah, absolutely. So the the swap is is you're paying a fixed rate for a floating rate um, exchange that's priced on uh, the monetary the benchmark monetary policy rate in any given economy. So obviously uh, these would be priced on on Fed funds. And so what we're seeing is you know we, we have. You know, OIS, you know, kind of in terms of what they're pricing in relative to the current Fed funds rate, you know, anywhere between 175 to 200 basis points, pick your tenor between 18 months and two years, um, you know, in terms of the terminal Fed funds rate or the terminal amount of monetary tightening we're going to see from the policy rate. But then beyond that, the curve starts to actually invert. And so that's the market signaling that, you know, somewhere between 18 months and two years time, the Fed will actually be cutting interest rates. Um, and that, in our opinion, is pretty. It's a it's a pretty clear signal from the from the rates market that the Fed is a going to do what it does best when it comes to tightening monetary policy, which is overdo it and push us into a recession. Yeah.
Uh, by the way, talking about inflation, I wanted to take a look at another piece of tape uh, here at Real Vision. Uh, this is a, a conversation today uh, on Real Vision Essential Plus and Pro uh, called, Is Gold Still the Best Hedge Against Inflation and Instability? Uh, it's a conversation with Rick Rule and George Milling Stanley. Uh, people who are very uh, who are following these markets know that uh, both of them are extremely well known uh, in the precious metal space, uh, in the gold community. Let's take a look at this clip because there's some insights here that I think are very interesting. I believe that inflation will gradually come down. I think, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an economist either, Rick, I admit that fully. Um, modern languages is my uh, academic background. You know, I'm certainly not going to bring the word transitory back into the vocabulary of people talking about rates of inflation. I think that got rather devalued toward the end of last year when, uh, when both Jerome Powell and Janet Yellen decided to remove it from the vocabulary. I think they were absolutely right to do so. In the face of six months of rising inflation, rising CPI, they had to remove it. But I still believe what we were told at the time, which is that some of the um, very high inflation rates that we're experiencing currently have to do with supply disruptions that are COVID-related. All of those, those uh, container ships moored off of the port of Long Beach in California, for example. I think a lot of them are still there. Um, people are talking about the fact that these supply disruptions will gradually dissipate, but they're still talking about them in the future tense. When they talk about them in the present tense, then I'll believe that they are actually dissipating. But until then, I won't. Um, so I think that there are a number of factors behind those high inflation rates that we see currently um, that suggest to me that they may turn out to be temporary. Transitory, no. Um, but they will not necessarily be with us forever. Here's what I think is interesting about that, Darius. Uh, so, you know, two guys uh, with a lot of experience in the gold space looking at these markets in very different ways than you are, looking at macro in very different ways than you are, and yet they reach the same conclusion, uh, a view of moderating inflation, uh, talk of supply chain uh, disruptions, uh, and the view that they are dissipating, which has been consistent with your view uh, of essentially being past peak supply chain uh, disruptions, a view you've articulated here on Real Vision before. Yeah, no, I mean, we, I, I believe we altered that call going back to, uh, you know, the fall of last year, I want to say September, October, I said, I think, we're, I think this is probably the peak of supply chain disruptions and all the incremental data we've gotten, both from PMIs, if you look at the ISN metrics from in terms of supplier delivery times, or if you look at the companies themselves, go back to GM, Apple, all these major international corporations telling us that, hey, look, we are moving past the worst of it all. And moving past the worst of it all should start to uh, uh, put some pressure, downward pressure on inflation momentum. But again, we can't, we're not going to go from 7.5% headline CPI to 2% headline CPI in a matter of months. It's going to take several quarters. Um, and obviously, core PCE uh, you know, being where it is, it's going to take several quarters to get that under control as well. And so at the end of the day, this is the problem with the forward guidance, and I think the Fed's going to you know, riddle me this, I believe, you know, a few years from now, when they look back at this episode, they're going to realize that they forward guided themselves and potentially into potentially tightening the economy into a recession, because this is a Federal Reserve that we know is Jay Powell Fed that does not want to surprise, does not want to spook markets, wants to be very, um, you know, sort of very clear and cogent about its plans and ultimately executing upon those plans. And there's a lot of plans to execute upon, right? You're talking about roughly seven rate hikes. Um, priced into um, to IS markets over the next year or so, that's a lot. Uh, but to me, the rate hikes are, are, are the sideshow. I've always thought they were a sideshow. The real market risk, uh, particularly for high beta risk assets, comes when the Fed is doing quantitative tightening. 
Um, yeah. This is something we talked about on the program as well. But if you look at our back test, you know, so we'll be in a regime by this middle of this year, certainly going back to that chart five here. Um, that's our, our grid model where we show uh, the projections for the U.S. economy. Uh, sorry, not this chart, but chart five, um, where we show the projections for the U.S. economy in grid terms. And you know, it's very likely we transition to uh, deflation. That's where growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously by the time you get into the sort of mid to late spring. Well, when you're in doing quantitative tightening, as the Fed is likely to be doing that um, in that in that particular uh, instance, you know that has a set minus seven percent annualized um, expected return for the S and P 500. But when you're talking about a minus, uh, when you're talking about high beta stocks, you know S and P 500 high beta index, that is a minus 44 percent annualized expected return. And so, you know, just those two variables alone, irrespective of the growth dynamic, which to me is the real big story of 2022. Just the two variables alone of inflation slowing simultaneously with growth and the Fed doing quantitative tightening could cause a severe crash in high beta stocks, high beta risk assets like crypto. And this is, again, before I say anything about the, the growth element. Yeah. Hey, Darius, we've got an absolute torrent of questions coming in, and I want to hit those soon, but I don't want to cut you off. Anything else you want to touch on before we hit these questions? No, no, no. I love the questions. They're great. Yeah, and we've got some really great ones here today. Obviously, people who knew you were coming on the show who have some great Darius Dale uh, macro questions. First one comes to us from Rob Bob from YouTube. Uh, and the question is, ask Darius about the balance sheet uh, runoff, please. Uh, and Darius, give us a little bit of context for people who don't follow Fed policy uh, about what this balance sheet runoff means. This is the uh, obviously as uh, the uh, balance uh, of the Fed, Treasury, uh, and uh, agency debt uh, matures, they run off. Give us a little bit of a sense for how that gets handled uh, at the Fed, because I think this is a, a bit of a confusing point uh, for retail investors who don't follow monetary policy as closely as you do, Darius. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's it's tricky, right? So the Fed is. is so let's talk. Let's talk about how we got here and where we're headed. The Fed was buying bonds, you know, to the tune of let's say the peak of QE, uh, the peak of this most recent QE program uh, prior to or since the, the the height of the, the crisis, since the height of the lockdowns, at 120 billion a month, 80 billion to Treasuries, 40 billion to mortgages. They were also buying somewhere around thereabouts, pick your month, another 100 billion just to sort of um, because they were reinvesting their principal payments so that the balance sheet wouldn't shrink, so that they could actually you know expand. The balance sheet by the stated goal of $120 billion a month. So that's somewhere around $200, $220 billion of bond buying the Fed is going to do. Um, obviously, taking you know QE to zero from a tapering standpoint, you know, stops the expansion of the balance sheet in terms of acquiring new securities, but you keep the balance sheet at the same size if you continue to reinvest principal repayments for treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. What the Fed is saying in terms of outlining its quantitative tightening program is that they're no longer going to continue to reinvest all of the principal uh, maturing treasuries. You know, it's very likely um, in terms of what's, what's likely to roll off the balance sheet, you know, basically starting in um, late spring through the late, through the late spring of next year, very likely we see roughly $1 trillion uh, of principal repayments on the balance sheet. And again, this is before the Fed, you know, this, uh, everything I just said was before we got the January CPI report. And obviously before we're going to get the uh, quote, this January core PC report. So, that one trillion could actually start to be met with additional selling as well. So it's unclear how fast the balance sheet will contract, but we know it's very likely to contract at least a trillion dollars once we get started over the first year. Yeah. Uh, hey, Darius, here's an interesting question actually coming back to what we were talking about uh, with Rick Rule and George Milling Stanley. Uh, what is Darius's outlook on gold and or silver? Yeah, I mean, look, so this you, you could be tell the two halves for silver. Silver is a high beta risk asset and high beta risk assets are 
likely to do well if the market is pricing in a positive impulse in growth as a function of this post-Omicron um, um, bounce dynamic in terms of economic activity. It's very likely we see a bounce in economic activity into uh, the spring of this year, again, off some pretty bombed out lows in December and January. So silver should do well uh, in that type of environment. But the reality is you might want to transition if you're long silver or get long silver as a function of that, you, you got a real short shelf life in terms of really wanting to pivot and take some profits there and rotating it into a gold because eventually everything I said about deflation being the dominant regime or being the economic regime um, in the back, starting in the spring and into the back half of the year, all that all everything I said about that as it relates to high beta risk assets and that negativity, that stuff tends to be positive for gold, those dynamics, at least historically, uh, when you factor in those back tests. And so you, you know, if you're gonna be long gold and or silver, so I would pick silver today and then gold tomorrow. Yeah, we should add a little bit of context here. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, gold trading right now at uh, looks like $1,867 per ounce. Uh, this is up on the year, I think, about 2.5%, but uh, th that's probably a surprisingly small gain. It has certainly not come anywhere near uh, to coming up with the rate of inflation uh, outperformed by the S&P by about uh, 10 percentage points. Uh, so obviously, uh, some interesting stuff in the gold market you would have expected. Uh, if someone had told you maybe a decade ago uh, that you have this 7% uh, uh, year over year rate uh, of increase on CPI, uh, and yet gold is only up 2.5% uh, uh, on the year. What are your thoughts on that? Well, so this, <laughs> I can go tinfoil on you, I can go not tinfoil on you, but uh, the reality Just is- both, man, know. not tinfoil first, and I want to hear the real joke. Yeah, all right, so tenfold, I think the central banks have been leaning on the price of gold throughout this inflation episode because it's a, you know, it's the, it's a signal to the sort of at least baby boomers and maybe even Gen Xers uh, that inflation is out of control. And so they've probably been leaning on the gold price for an extended period of time because you run any sort of simple regression model, multiple regression analysis, gold should have been probably somewhere close to $2,200 an ounce, um, you know, going back to, to the last fall, um, you know, where we're kind of at the trough of, of real interest rates. Um, we've seen a big move higher in interest rates, um, and gold has sort of held up fairly well um, throughout that time period. So maybe they're starting to ease off of holding down the price of gold as real interest rates rise because they know ultimately uh, the prices are getting more in line uh, with equilibrium. Um, the less tenfold hand handy response is we all understand that cryptocurrency, uh, certainly for millennials and Gen Z uh, investors, um, represent that avenue for for capital uh, to protect it as an inflation hedge. So. Just, just, there's just less human beings um, interested in transacting in, in bullion. Yeah, that's uh, something that I've actually been thinking about as I look at those numbers, and it's an interesting point. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, here's a great question that comes to us from Hassam M from the Exchange. This is Real Vision's internal social network. Uh, and it's a question that I've actually been wondering about myself. Uh, and Hassam is asking about today's retail sales print. Uh, and the question is, does retail sales staying strong imply that the consumer is holding up despite higher inflation? I guess the flip side of that is, uh, is there a risk uh, that what we're seeing is inflation creeping into that number and consumers just having no choice uh, but to pay those higher prices? Yeah, so uh, let's start by saying staying strong is somewhat of a misnomer, right? 
So there's a couple of things. So retail sales came in extremely strong this, this, this week, or sorry, this morning. Um, headline was at 56%, uh, plus 56% on a season adjusted annualized rate basis. So, um, you know, sort of the annualized pace of the month over month gain. Um, that's the fastest great growth rate we've seen since March of this year. Um, but that's coming, that's comping against a minus 27% contraction in December. So that's basically year over year showing uh, showing uh, base low base effects, and also we should say uh, retail sales in January on a month over month basis still quite high, three point eight percent. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're trying we're, we're tra talking about it on a month on month annualized basis. I think it's still too soon to start looking at economic statistics on a year over year basis uh, soon. As a function of we saw we still saw some pretty material um, sort of impact from COVID in, in in the statistics last year. So we probably would have to wait until twenty twenty three to really kind of rid ourselves of having to not look at um, statistics the way we want to, which is on a year over year rate of change basis. But the reality is control group accelerated pretty markedly as well, 75% SAR. That's also the highest print we've seen since March. But again, it's coming off of a minus 39% annualized pace of contraction in December. So, you know, these these prints are not, they're, they're being flattered by, you know, some pretty rancid data that we saw in the month of December. But that doesn't take it away, doesn't take anything away from them. These, these are strong prints and then moving in the right direction. But let's not forget, retail sales are not adjusted for inflation. And so on any given you know, time, normal down and distance, you know, inflation can be somewhere between a third to a half of all retail sales growth. Uh, I'm guessing you know, with inflation at seven and a half percent, that it's quite possibly considerably more than a third to a half, um, at least in this, this particular month. So we're gonna have to wait till we get the, um, uh, the core, the, 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 the pre-CE data, that's the overall consumer spending on a real basis, both services and goods. Um, I want to say I think that's uh, next Thursday or Friday to really get the real clues on the on the consumer. Yeah, and I should say for the non-macro ads out there, SAR is seasonally adjusted annual rate. Uh, it's a method of smoothing the data to give you an attempt uh, at, a, at a smoother uh, apples to apples comparison that does not have noise uh, from seasonality in the data. Uh, Darius, great show. Always great having you on. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, so my key take, I mean, these are the same key takeaways I've been saying really since going back to the late summer of last year. Like, look, the market, you know, there's a lot of market risk in 2022. Um, and that market risk is really born out of the fact that, you know, going back to that slide five, we're heading into the wrong economic state um, as it relates to, you know, sort of um, investor willingness, investor appetite, and investors' ability to take leverage um, in speculative financial markets. That is being exacerbated by Federal Reserve that has woken up and recognized that it's woefully behind both the curve and the economic cycle um, in terms of um, you know, the set of the inflation dynamics in the country. They're going to tighten. They're probably going to over-tighten because, again, it's very unlikely we see inflation moderate or wage pressure moderate uh, to a degree, by a significant enough degree at the early onset of this process um, to sort of give them a signal to back off, which ultimately means the markets themselves have to give the Fed the signal to back off. And so, um, you know, we've always thought that there was, you know, certainly risk of a, of a market crash, um, you know, cross-asset market crash uh, in 2022. Um, and I certainly think based on the data we've seen in recent months, if you look at the consumer confidence data, which we don't have time to, to talk about today, there's a lot of data that suggests the U.S. economy is potentially heading into a recession, maybe not this year, but certainly probably um, by sometime in the early in the first half of 2023. Um, and I think that's what the yield curve might be signaling. And ultimately, that's what asset markets might be signaling. But between between now and then, markets still have to price in a, a post-Omicron bounce in economic activity. So that just means you don't need to run out and short everything today. Yeah, have some time on that. Darius, as always, elegantly summarized. Always a pleasure to have you here. Um, 
I should say to our audience, if you've seen some technical problems in this broadcast, uh, we're having some tre trouble with the internet. There's some delays on the internet right now, and we're working on rerouting that, uh, and hopefully we'll have that sorted out very soon. Thank you, as always, for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I will be back again tomorrow with Jared Dillian. As always, the conversation continues on The Exchange. Thanks for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.